Amen. Somebody gave me a tiny little coin. That that might come into play later. Uh, <laughs> casting lots, flipping the coin, throwing the dice, um, rock, paper, scissors. All those things, how to make a wise and godly decision. Right, John? Yeah. So um, when I was growing up, um, I was like most kids, um, rebellious. <laughs> I don't know most kids, but a lot of kids. And I uh, came to know the Lord, uh, but I grew up in a pastor's home. My dad was a pastor. My grandfather was a pastor. My great-grandfather was a pastor, um, which, you know, means that I had like that much more possibility of being rebellious because pastor's kids, you know, they, uh, anyway, my, my kids are great. So thank the Lord for that. Um, but something changed in my heart when I came to know Christ and I learned something about, um, understanding God's will. So here's what, what my experience was. My parents, my, my, my dad especially, um, growing up, did not ever put any kind of uh, uh, pressure to go into ministry. It was never a thing that, you know, there's any expectation that, that I or, or any of the kids would, would become pastors going to ministry. It just wasn't there. Um, and so when I came to Christ, it wasn't like something that I thought, oh, yeah, I think I'll become a pastor. I never... I never thought that, and I went to college, and um, I really just wanted to know the Lord, and so I began to like study Scripture. I went to a Bible college because I just wanted to know who God was. That was the whole emphasis and the point. It wasn't because I wanted to go into ministry. It was because I wanted to know the Lord, um, and there was one thing that my parents did impress upon me, which was they didn't necessarily care what the kids did for jobs or careers or anything like that, but just that we would seek God's will for our life. That was it. Just seek God's will for your life. And um, that became the the central issue, you know, for me when I was going to college and learning and studying and growing in my faith. And it was just, what is God's will for my life? And so that that's an issue of discernment that we all have to kind of wrestle with and understand. What, what does God want for you, from you? What, is, what does he want in your life? What, and the first thing that every human being okay, can begin to answer is salvation is God's will for everybody. He, he wants every human being on the planet to know him, to be secure in, in their walk with him, to have hope of eternal life, to receive Jesus as, as Lord and Savior. He wants every single human being to be with him in heaven. Uh, so when we talk about discerning God's will, uh, we begin there, but then we move into, okay, now that I'm saved, now what does God want? And as we're like trying to figure that out, um, it's interesting because, you know, I, I, <laughs> I did not plan this. It wasn't really an intentional thought that, you know, okay, we had Vision Sunday last week, and this week we're going to talk about discernment. Um, I, it was just one of those things that God kind of began to reveal to me as I was preparing the sermon. 
In fact, this is a weird thing about the process that I go through when I'm writing and preparing. And I I wrote an introduction for the the sermon that had nothing to do with anything that I'm actually talking about right now. (laughs) But then as I'm walking through and I'm preparing, uh, like Friday, I I begin to kind of walk through it. And Saturday, I'm like, no, that's not the right introduction. That's not what God wants me to say. Um, what I really need to be talking about is is the fact that um, Vision Sunday, we, we last week we proposed or we uh, shared, uh, revealed, whatever you want to say, the, the plans, the building plans that we've been working on for a long time. Like 10 years we've been working on this process. And for 10 years we've kind of come to some um, ideas and pr- proposed some ideas and we've gone back and we're like, no, that's not quite right. And we um, we finally came to the proposal that we shared last week. And that whole like scenario of trying to figure this out and learn and understand what the church needs and what should we do and what can we do and all those things, it, it boils down to that one question, what is God's will? What does he want? And then when you think that you've kind of hit upon like what we believe God's will is, then the next question is, how do we know for sure? How do, how do we have absolute clarity and confidence that this is what God wants us to do? And when we're, we're looking at some things in the scripture, we're going to see uh, there are times when it's clear and the people just know absolutely. And, and there are times that you know absolutely that a decision that you need to make um, is just crystal clear to you, and you know that this is what God wants, and uh, nobody has to convince you of it, and it's not a question. It's just like something hits your heart, or you're just convinced, or you have peace, or you have some clarity that, yep, this is what I'm supposed to do. And other times, you're trying to figure it out, and you're praying over it, and you're trying to discern, and you're asking people to pipe in, and you're like doing all this kind of work to try to figure out God's will, and and you're just like, I'm, I'm still not sure. Anybody ever been there? I'm just like, I mean, sometimes you go years trying to figure out, am I supposed to do this? Am I supposed to go here? Am I supposed to move here? Am I supposed to do this job? Am I supposed to have this? Am I supposed to get rid of that? I mean, you're like over and over just mulling it over. And the, the thing about casting lots was that when there was a, a mysterious aspect of God's will that the people weren't sure about, they could go to the priest and he would cast the lots and, and uh, he would say, this is God's will or this is God's will. They would say, it's either a yes or no, you can go forward or you don't. Or in, and it was like, okay, well, that's, he's in control. And so I'm, I'm going to trust that and we'll, we'll go there. We don't do that anymore, right? I mean, we could, we could rock, paper, scissors, the, the building plan. You want, I mean, right? Or flip a coin and say, well, God is in control of, I mean, this isn't a very big coin, but uh, we could flip a coin and say, okay, heads, it's a go, and tails, it's a no. And whatever God says, then we'll just trust that that's what it is. So we, we don't do that because there are some things in Scripture that he reveals about how to discern his will, and we're going to get there. But what I want you to see in Scripture is that it was, it was always hard. It was always a struggle to to clarify the things that were 
mysterious that God had said, they're, they're just going to be mysterious. They're, they're in my heart, and it, you're going to have to work at understanding what his will is. You're going to have to, you're going to, have to spend time to discern this. You're going to have to really appeal to and, and seek the Lord on this. It's not just going to come to you in a moment. It's going to be a process. So um, as we're looking at this, I just want you to understand that, that um, God had put these processes, these the systems, these plans, or you know, however you want to say it, the, the way to discern his will, that he put them in the Jewish religion. He put them into the Christian faith. He put them all through scripture. And he's giving us uh, an understanding of how we can discern, not just for our church, okay? This isn't just about whether we should build or not or whatever. This is about how each and every one of us comes to a, a clarity about the big decisions that we have to all make uh, on, a, on a regular basis, okay? So let's stand as we read God's Word this morning. It is Exodus 28. Okay, we, I think that was um, maybe different in the slide. Exodus 28, starting in verse 15. We're going to go through a few verses, and then we're going to skip some detail um, from 22 to 20, uh, 28. Um, say thank you. <laughs> um, those, okay, let's begin. Exodus 28, starting in verse 15. You shall make a breastpiece of judgment. In skilled work, in the style of the ephod, you shall make it. Of gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, fine twined linen, you shall make it. It shall be square and doubled, a span its length and a span its breadth. You shall make it in four rows of stones. A row of sardis, topaz, and carbuncle shall be the first row. The second row, an emerald, a sapphire, and a diamond. And the third, a jacinth, an agate, and an amethyst. The fourth row, a barrel, an onyx, and a jasper. They shall be set in gold filigree. There shall be twelve stones with the names according to the names of the sons of Israel. They shall be like signets, each engraved with its name for the twelve tribes. And skip down to 29. So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel in the breastpiece of judgment on his heart when he goes into the holy place to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. And in the breastpiece of judgment you shall put the Urim and the Thummim, and they shall be on Aaron's heart when he goes in before the Lord. Thus Aaron shall bear the judgment of the people of Israel on his heart before the Lord regularly. And Father, we thank you for your word, your will, your, your plans, um, your promises. Uh, Lord, we are overwhelmed with your goodness, um, your favor, your mercy, uh, your grace, Lord, your your patience, you continue just to pour out blessing. Uh, Lord, we look around this church and we're amazed at um, what you've done, what you continue to do, how you continue just to, to move um, in, in each and every aspect of, of the weak and small things that we do. Lord, you somehow are willing to fill it with power and purpose and, and uh, fruit and, uh, Lord, we're just, we're so thankful uh, we get to be part of, of what you do all the time. And uh, we give you praise for that. We thank you for um, your will. Lord, we're here to seek your will. We want to know what you want, and we want to do what you want. 
so make it clear, Lord, we pray, um, and we will seek to, to be obedient. Um, and we thank you that we can do that because you've given us your spirit to give us uh, understanding, to give us conviction, to give us power, to give us gifts of, of uh, serving, Lord, every, every aspect, everything that we need, Lord, you provide. And uh, we are so thankful that we get to use it, uh, again, for your kingdom, for your glory, for your namesake, for our community, for our world. Um, and somehow we are blessed in doing that. In Jesus' name, amen. So when it comes down to any decision that we make, um, big decisions, small decisions, anything that we're trying to figure out, the thing that happened for me was I clarified in my own heart that the only thing that mattered was what does God want? It's the only question that I really had to ask, and it's the only one that made really mattered if I answered Everything else was, you know, well, is, is, it, is it wise? Is it a good decision? Pros and cons? Does it, you know, fit my lifestyle? Does it fit, you know, whatever the, is going on around me? I mean, you, you can have all these different aspects that you're trying to use to make decisions. But at the end of the day, God's will becomes the, the first and foremost and most important issue. What does God want? And if it's his will, then you go for it. And if it's not his will, then you don't do it. And it doesn't matter which one makes sense. Sometimes his will makes no sense. And sometimes what you think would be the best and most appropriate and most successful thing is not what he wants. And you just, you have to step back and say, okay, it's not, it doesn't matter what I do. It matters what he wants me to do. And so uh, the, the people of Israel, we've been in this, you know, time frame several times in the last month or so where we have the, the people of Israel have been rescued out of slavery, out of Egypt. They're at Mount Sinai. They've established the covenant. They're being established as a people. Um, they're being given the law. And here we have Moses going up on the mountain, receiving from God these directions about how the, the people of Israel are going to be organized. Okay, they, They've never been organized before. They've always just been just a, a group of, of people that kind of were related to each other. Uh, but they weren't a nation. They weren't. They didn't have a law. They didn't have a, any kind of a real clear identity. They they just were people that, you know, had come from the same ancestors and lived in the same region. And 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 for a while, uh, they're still going to kind of act like these divided tribes of people that are just living in the same country. But what's happening here is that God is clarifying that He's establishing His law, His will, His promises his commands, his desires for the people. And in doing that, um, he gives them um, a mediator or some mediators, which are the priests. In order to have a law, you're going to have to have somebody who mediates the law. And what that means is, as we're looking through this piece, I don't know if you thought you know, this made any sense in, in terms of casting lots. We'll, we'll talk about what that means in a second. But what is happening with this description is that Aaron is being given the uh, breastplate of judgment. And so he's going to be able to make judgments, but this is what the priests do. They are responsible for executing or um, Im imposing, so to speak, the law on the people. They determine if you broke the law. They determine if you're pure. They determine whether or not your sacrifice is sufficient. They determine whether or not you deserve the death penalty or a fine, or if you... 
are right with God or not right with God. If you've done the right thing or not done the right thing. They are the ones, they are not just the, the religious people in the temple, you know, performing the, the, the ritual sacrifices. They are the police. They're the FBI. They're the judges. They're the courts. They, they are in charge of mediating the law to the people. I mean, you think about the priesthood and you don't often think about them being the enforcers of the law, but that's what they did. They determined, here's what God said. We didn't have this before. Now we have a law that we, that we are responsible to keep. And if we don't keep it, then there are judgments. And there are not just judgments in eternal life and forever in heaven. There are judgments in this life. It's, it's a combination of the civic responsibility and the religious responsibility that are overlapping for the Israelite people in their day. No other government has really was like that or ever has been like that. It was intended to be a theocracy. God is king and the priests are the mediators between the law and the people to help people to understand whether they're right or wrong with God. That's it's a strange concept to us. We don't we we separate our faith and our civil, you know, responsibilities. So far, we have no concept of what this would have really been like. But this is what they were doing. They were determining judgment. And some things were clear to all of them. Because the word said it. Is this is what you do. You don't work on the Sabbath. You go out and pick up sticks on the Sabbath. Then, in, one of, in some stories here, they are executed. It was that serious, like you don't break the Sabbath because in doing so, you're breaking your relationship with God and you're, you're actually putting the whole community in danger of judgment. So it was a serious offense. There were a lot of things like that, that the law said it very clearly. The priests were in charge of making sure that the people knew it and that they lived by it, and then when they broke it, that they were responsible for it. So... One of the things that happens is there are things that the people don't know because it's not clearly stated in the law, right? And there are things that, what, what is God's will for us in this particular situation that the word of God, the law does not address? How do we make a decision on that? They would go to Moses. You know, when Moses was there, he, they would ask Moses all kinds of judgments. He, was, he would sit in this judgment seat Day and night, all day long, just people would come to him with questions and, and debates and, and arguments and lawsuits, and he would just make judgments. Well, the Lord says this, and the Lord says And part of that was he was interpreting the law, and part of it was he was receiving the word from God, and he was, he was just giving that to the people. Then Moses died, and so he wasn't there to do that anymore. And so that whole thing got transferred over to the priesthood. The priesthood is established, and this is their job. They are judges. For the people to say, this is what the law says. And then when we don't know what the law really would say to a situation, then we got to make another judgment. How did they do that? So they had this breast piece. So the, the priests had this very elaborate um, uniform. I don't know. So <laughs> it's not a uniform. It, it was it was a priestly garments. They had the white robes and the blue shirt and they had the big turban and they had all these gold things and tassels and and they had something called an ephod, which is like an apron. And then it was very elaborate and with blue and purple yarn and gold and all this stuff. And then he said, make a breast piece 
a square that is going to cover your heart, and it's going to be made of gold, and you're going to put um, 12 stones in it for the 12 tribes of Israel, which is where we get our birthstones from. Everybody know your birthstone? Anybody not know their birthstone? We'll find out for you. Don't worry. So that's where that comes from. 12 tribes, 12 months. Each one has its own particular birthstone and so, uh, or its own particular gem. And that's what he does. Put those in there and inscribe on each one the name of the tribe of Israel. And so that's what's, what you're going to do is you're going to put this on. And then when you go into the Holy of Holies for the Day of Atonement and you offer the sacrifice for the whole community, you're representing all of Israel in that breast piece. It, it is a, a memorial before the Lord. It is a symbol that you represent all of Israel because you're wearing this on your chest, covering your heart, and it is a, a representation of God's people before God. Now, here's something else, though, is that this breast piece had a pocket, and in the pocket there was something called the Urim and the Thummim. Okay, say that 12 times fast. The Urim and the Thummim. Okay, what those were were two things. <laughs> we don't know what they were. Were they gems? Were they coins? Were they rocks? Were they... We don't know. There's no description of what they looked like, what they had on them, how you used them, what they were made of. It just says the Urim and the Thummim. And what they were, uh, or, or what the translation is, though, is the lights... And the perfection. That's what those words actually mean. The lights and the perfection. And whenever there's a question about what we should do, and we don't know because the word doesn't say, then they would call the high priest, and he would bring out the Urim and the Thummim, and he would cast, and this is where we get casting lots, he would do whatever he does with them, roll them, stack them, knock them, I don't know what he did, whatever they did. And he would say, this is what God says according to the Urim and the Thummim. It was like rolling the dice. It was maybe like flipping a coin. But it was, it was a fair way to determine God's will. Yes or no. And they, would, they were not just allowed to do this. They were commanded to do this when they were going to do some very important things throughout their history. Casting lots is what we uh, generally refer to that as. So when you talk about casting lots, do you understand that this is where you get your lot in life? You ever heard that before? Your lot in life is your God-ordained circumstance. That he has given you a lot. He, is, he has determined where you will be, who you will be, what will be, Generally, your circumstance, it's, it's my lot in life, right, to be bald. I didn't really have a choice in that. I guess I could go get surgery or something, but that's just your lot in life. It's, and and, and there's some, some things in your life that you just say, it's okay. Like, it's what God, now you have to figure this out, though. If I believe that my lot in life is, you know, to be in Alito, um, in this time, in this church, in this community, for this reason, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, then what do I do with that? How, in other words, how can I be faithful 
with what God has given me in my circumstance. I have a particular circumstance. I have a particular opportunity. I have a particular influence. And I can either use that to glorify God or I can use it selfishly. Or not use it to glorify God and just abandon my purpose. Every single person has a lot in life. They have a circumstance that God has allowed them to be in. And your choice is, will I use that to God's glory or not? Will I praise God for it or will I, will I uh, be resentful? Because I, I have to deal with this situation. It, it, you choose. Every moment of your life is a choice to either trust God and glorify Him and honor Him or to um, be resentful, be angry, try to change it, try to figure out a way out. <laughs> you have to choose what you're going to do with it. So uh, what happened with the, the Urim and the Thummim is that you know Moses dies, Aaron dies, Eliezer becomes the priest, Joshua, who's taken over for Moses, is commanded to take the people into Israel. And God says, before you do that, um, I want you to cast lots, the Urim and the Thummim, I want you to cast lots to determine whether or not to go into battle. And so whenever they would fight a, a, a group or uh, another nation or whatever they did, they would determine that based on the high priest getting these things out of the breastplate, which is for judgment. And that judgment means to make judgments, to make determinations, to make decisions, to discern the will of God. He would make judgment based on the Urim and the Thummim. Yes, we can go into battle. No, we can't go into battle. That was, that was how they did it. And then after they conquered the land of Israel, God says, I want you to um, divide the land up, the 12 tribes, based on casting lots. And so they had the 12 stones, and somehow or other the stones coordinated with the, the lights and the perfection, the Urim and the Thummim, and they were able to say this piece of land goes to Judah, this goes to Benjamin, this goes to Gad, this one, you know, all, all of them right down the line. They could just determine that. And they knew it was fair and they knew it was God's will and they didn't have to question and wonder. It wasn't about favoritism. It wasn't that somebody said, well, I want this piece and this is better for me. It was all absolutely God's determination. But by this strange practice that we don't practice anymore. Fast forward 400, a little more than 400 years, and Israel wants a king. Okay, remember this? Samuel is the prophet. He's a priest. He's a judge. He's kind of ruling over Israel in in a judge role. Um, And the people say, we want a king. We want to be like the other nations. We don't want you to be our king. We don't want your sons to be judges anymore. We want a king. And so Samuel goes to the Lord, and uh, it's not really a great decision, but God says, okay. And he reveals to Samuel that the king is going to be who? Saul. Saul's going to be the first king of Israel. Here's what happens with Saul. He's nobody. He's just a, a tall guy. That's all he is. Okay? He's wandering around looking for his, his father's lost donkeys, and he, he and his friend, they're like, we can't find these donkeys. I mean, this is a true story. This is right out of the scripture. And they're wandering around. They finally go to the place where Samuel is. And they're like, well, there's a prophet over here. Why don't we go ask him? Maybe he will supernaturally know where these donkeys are. And they go in, they ask him. 
And Samuel says, your donkeys are found. Your father's no longer worried about them. Now he's worried about you because you've been gone so long. And guess what? You get to be king of Israel. And here's how you're going to know that. Because on your way home, all these things are going to happen. And he just begins to tell him all the things that are going to happen as he's traveling back home. One of the things that happens is you're going to run into a group of prophets. And then the Holy Spirit's going to come on you. And you're going to prophesy just like them. And then... Boom. And so here's confirmation. So here's Saul goes along and he finally comes to this group of prophets. He becomes a prophet and uh, he has the Holy Spirit. And yet he doesn't really know for sure. I mean, he's got the confirmation, but he's like, I don't know. That seems like a big kind of responsibility to be the king. So he's kind of hiding out. Finally, they get all of Israel together. Samuel says, it's time to choose a king. And what does he do? You know the story? He knows who the king is. Saul knows that he's, he's been given the confirmation that he's supposed to be the king. But that's not what they do. They don't just say, God said it's going to be Saul. So here he is. They, what they do is they begin to cast lots. The lot goes to Benjamin. Out of the, out of the clans of Benjamin, the, the lot goes to this clan. Out of the clans uh, of that family, it's going to be this particular family. And it's going to be uh, Kish and his family. And it's going to be who out of that whole family? It's going to be Saul. And they just... Keep casting the lots until they get to that person. And here we have the choice made. And the Israelites were like, we know this is God's will. It's not your opinion because it's what the lot has decided. We can trust it. Is that kind of crazy? Whenever they would go into battle, Saul did this over and over and over. They would cast a lot. Should we go into war or not? And then here's what's interesting. At least twice, and, and probably many more times than that, but at least twice, there was no answer. Saul is like, should I go to, into battle with this or not? And they cast a lot and they come up with nothing. So it, it can't be just a coin unless the coin can stand on its edge, right? Because you can't come up with a, it's not just a yes or no. There's got to be a way that they cancel each other out or something because you can keep going and asking and keep searching and he just is silent and what happens though is that they realize through that silence that there's sin in the camp there's something wrong let me pause here and explain something for all of us for just a second you ever been seeking god's will and just haven't been hearing his voice can't get to a place where you feel peaceful or comfortable or confident that I'm supposed to do this or that and I'm just not hearing and, and you just keep pushing, keep seeking and keep trying to find the answer and it's just not there. And part of what may be happening is that God is silent on this thing that you're asking because you are disobedient in something he's clearly told you. There's something that, that you're not doing, something that he's He's called you to something he has revealed to you, something that maybe his word is very clearly expressed and you're just disobedient, you're in sin. And he said, until you deal with that, I'm not going to reveal this. Just I'm not going to talk to you about your future when you're still living in your past. Kind of the idea. So that was going on a couple different times that happens. Um, David uses the, the um, Urim and the Thummim to decide battles and things. They just You see this process, not just early, but all through. In fact, after they are in exile, they go to Babylon, they come back, 
Ezra and Nehemiah, you read those books. They're rebuilding the temple. They're rebuilding the, the walls and all that. And they're saying, we need a priest with the, the Urim and the Thummim so we can make some decisions. They're still doing that. And you say, well, okay, that's fine, but that's Old Testament. We're in the, the Christian age, the, the New Testament. That, it's not the same thing, right? Look at the New Testament. You have several times when they are still using lots to decide things. Remember Zechariah, father of John the Baptist? He goes into the temple and he offers incense and Gabriel comes and says, you're going to have a son, his name is you know, John, and, and he's going to lead the way for the Messiah, and the, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? He's going to be this awesome guy who wears camel hair and eats locusts and dips them in honey, and right? How did he get chosen for that job? The job of offering incense that day. The Bible says... They cast lots to determine that. They're still, they're still using this method to determine things in the New Testament. And they say, well, that's still under the old Jewish religious system. That's not the same thing. Now, fast forward a little bit. Jesus has done his earthly ministry. Uh, he's died, rose again, ascended into heaven. And Judas is dead. And now the disciples are gathered together. There's 11 of them. And they say, according to the word that his position, Judas's position, should be filled. We know that. And they say, but who should it be? Right? So they begin to accept some resumes from some guys. Oh, this guy, he types 50 words a minute. Proficient in the word. I know, that's so bad. But they get all these... Guys, they're like, okay, they were with Jesus in the beginning. They heard his teachings. They saw his miracles. They were with him when he was crucified. They saw him after he rose again. They were there in the inner room when Jesus appeared. They saw all the things that Jesus taught, you know, in the 40 days after the resurrection until he ascended to heaven. They were there when he ascended to heaven. They saw him going to heaven. So they qualify. They narrow it down to two guys that really are the best possible choices. They say, I don't know. Mattathias, Justice, which one should it be? And what do they do? Now, understand this. The apostles, after, according to the Gospel of John, after Jesus rose from the dead, He breathed on them the Holy Spirit. They have the Holy Spirit. It's not like, well, Pentecost hasn't happened yet, so they don't have the Spirit. They have the Holy Spirit. They should be able to discern through the power of the Spirit and their apostolic gift, who should it be? I mean, you would possibly think that but what do they do can anybody possibly guess they cast the lot they the lot goes to mattathias and he becomes the 12th apostle it's it's a strange thing that you see this practice not just in the old testament you see it in the new testament and yet we don't practice it anymore do you wonder why This is why this is a lesser-known thing. I think most people don't even realize that this, rolling the dice, flipping the coin, etc., is possibly a sanctified thing. Like, could it be a, a good thing? Could it be something God would use? Could it be something that would be, you know, okay for for believing people to do? Now, let me say this. There's a couple things that you have to understand. How different does this sound from the process of divination? 
You ever heard that, divination? Um, in the Old Testament, you saw this happen. They would fill a bowl of water and they would stare into it until they went into a trance. And then they would like be able to like discern things and see visions. And um, There were people that uh, they would you know, do drugs, basically, and have hallucinations, and they would try to, you know, use that to figure out, you know, the, the future. Uh, people who, in our day, um, are, are, this is becoming a very popular practice, using tarot cards. And they're, you know, all the time, people are just, like, shuffling the cards and laying them out, and, okay, this means this, and this means that, and they're using all these symbols to try to figure out what the future is going to be. And they want to know the future, and they want to know what's going to happen. They know, want to know what they should do. And people are getting their palm read, and they're going to the psychics, and they're having their, you know, the tea leaves read, and they're doing all this stuff. What's the difference between that and flipping a coin, or discerning spiritually something, a process, a decision you should make? Can I tell you? It's not really the thing that you're doing; it's who you're asking. They're not asking God. They're asking an evil spirit or a demon or a false god. What should I do? And I'm going to tell you, they may get an answer. It's not God's will. (laughs) They may get an answer. They may get a real bona fide, actual interaction with an evil spirit and find out something that is hidden. And they have put themselves into a position to have fellowship with something evil. And what we're doing is we're appealing to the Lord and we want to know his will and we want to know what his plan is for us. And we will never appeal to these false things to try to find that answer. I would rather live in ignorance or in darkness or in not knowing or then try to find an answer that comes from an evil source. So we're, we're going to seek the Lord and we're going to desire His will and we're going to wait for Him to reveal it, however long it takes. And I've said this before and, and many times. I don't have to know the whole thing. I don't have to know the end. I just need to know the next step. And Because I, I trust that the Lord's going to shine that light just enough for you to take that step whatever the next thing is. And if he's not shining the light on the next step, then just stay where you're at because you're in the right spot, right? So what happens though is that we don't have this thing, this casting lots. Why is that? I don't know. And here's what I'm going to tell you. I don't know that it would be wrong to have uh, this process to cast lots or whatever that would look like, but we don't know how to do it. We don't, whether it was good or bad, or, you know, it, the issue is we, we lost that capability. We don't have a description of it. We don't have the, the, the things, a description of the things that they use. We don't have a process. We don't have any way to recover how that was really happening. So you could create something, but you could not be confident that it was the right thing. And the answer could be who knows what. So God has given us all kinds of other ways to discern his will, right? And here's where we begin. One thing is that the Bible says that 
and I already kind of shared this, but the secret things, this is Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. The things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of his law. The first thing that we have to understand is that when we have the word of God, then our first step of obedience is just to do what he's called us to do. What we know clearly that he's revealed in his word that we ought to all be doing. Okay, it's not necessarily particular to you, um, although you may be, you may seem or feel like you're a little different because you're trying to obey God and the people around you are not. But it's the, it's the same level of morality, right, and, and ethics that God has revealed to everyone, right? Now, how tired are you? How much do you want me to get into this? You're laughing like, it's Super Bowl Sunday. I have something in the crock pot, and I want to take a little nap before it start, the game starts. Okay, but here's the deal. I didn't get a green light, but I'm going to go anyway. As a, I say as Baptists, how many of you would say, yeah, you're a Baptist? Like, nobody. Okay, so... <laughs> The thing is, there's this teaching in the Baptist tradition which is called uh, soul freedom. You ever heard of that? No. Okay. Soul freedom is this, this idea, this doctrine or, or theology or whatever you want to call it. Uh, it's biblical, but it just the words, don't you don't see them there. It's the Holy Spirit has empowered you to be able to discern and interpret the God's word for yourself. You don't need somebody a priest, okay, because you're the priesthood of all believers. You don't need somebody to tell you what the word has to mean to you, okay? You have the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Do you believe this? You have the conviction of the Holy Spirit to understand the word of God for yourself and apply it to your life, right? We, we believe every, everybody who's a Christian has that ability and that power and that responsibility to do that. Now, the, the issue with soul freedom is that at some point, um, there became this debate within the, the, I don't know if it's a debate, but a problem within the Baptist church where because of soul freedom, people could have contradictory interpretations of a very clear passage of scripture. Okay, that's not what soul freedom is about. You don't have the right to break and to misuse the word of God to do whatever you want to do, even though the word of God just clearly says no. Right? You don't. You can't say, well, because I'm interpreting according to my own, you know, power of the Holy Spirit within me, I can steal, and even though it might be wrong for you, like you don't get to make those decisions. Like there is a boundary around what is right and wrong that is clear that the Scripture is saying that nobody can say that I'm going to just interpret that my own way. Where this became a big problem was with sexuality, because people have strong feelings. And they're saying, well, uh, I can be a good Christian and still do this wrong thing because I still love the Lord and I am still saved by grace and you don't have to do anything according to the law in order to be saved. So I therefore can do whatever I want. And then what do we, we say? Well, you know, Scripture says this is right, this is wrong, this is God's will, this is not God's will. You, you don't have that ability to, to change what the Word of God says for your feeling or preference. 
So there's some clear boundaries within Scripture what everybody ought to be agreeing to in, in terms of obedience. Does that make sense? I probably elaborated on that more than you needed. But he says the secret things belong to the Lord our God. There are things that Scripture doesn't talk about. Scripture doesn't hit on, doesn't really address that you're still trying to figure out. Is this right, wrong? Is this God's will for me or not? How do I, how do I move forward with this in an appropriate way? How do you do that? And here's, I'm just going to tell you a few things that, that we understand. Scripture clearly reveals, even though it doesn't say, do this, don't do this, it does give us a process for discernment. And one is that we begin with, if I'm obedient in the things that I know, God is more willing to tell me the things that I don't know in that relationship. He's going to reveal things to me in my prayer time. I'm going to go to Him. There's going to be a sense of peace about a decision that I need to make because my relationship with God, and I have fellowship with him and he's sharing things with me. And so I, I have more confidence about some of the things that I'm asking him about. You have that experience? That's part of that. Second thing is wisdom. We have the clear teaching of the word and then we have the things that the, the scripture gives us uh, kind of a, a push toward. Okay, and wisdom is difficult. Wisdom is not always clear. Wisdom is something that you have to really wrestle with sometimes. Um, I'll tell you, here, I'll give you one, okay? Um, Wisdom, this is Proverbs. A lot of the wisdom that you're going to receive is going to be from Proverbs. 26, verse 4, Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Does that make sense? Don't answer a fool according to their folly, or else you'll become a fool. Don't get into an argument with somebody who's a fool or you will become a fool. Does that make sense? Clear? Apply that 100% of the time, right? (laughs) Verse 5. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Does that, you understand what that means? If you don't address somebody who's in, in folly, in their foolishness, then they will think that they're right. So if you're just silent and they're spouting off the mouth and they're totally wrong and you're just like, well, I'm not going to say anything, then they're going to continue in their wrong path thinking that they're correct. Those two responses sound contradictory, do they not? This is wisdom literature. What it, what it means is you have to discern the context, the situation, the person, the timing, the opportunity, the responsibility, all of those things to, to figure out, is this a time when I need to address this person? Or is this a time that I need to refrain from addressing that person? Do I get into a Facebook battle with this person? Or do I... You know what? Let them go do what they're going to do. I, if I get involved, somebody's going to get punched. That never happens though, right? That's the problem, I think. If people would actually get punched... Because of stuff they're saying on Facebook, you'd probably have a little bit less. Okay. It's, it's too safe. Even just boxing gloves. I mean, let's settle some things. But So that's the thing about wisdom. It's, it's not always do this. It is you got to interpret. You got to understand. You have to... Be a person of the time to know what the situation is 
dictating to you. So you begin to apply wisdom to your life, and now you're starting to see that you have to navigate some difficult situations. It's not just clear. And here's the other thing about that. When you're talking about, um, like, our vision, okay? We're talking about a big vision, a big building, a big price tag. So wisdom would say what? Too risky. Anybody think that? Too risky. It's too expensive. We can't afford that. That's not, that's not wise. It's not wise to put yourself at risk. Well, let me tell you the other side. What does the New Testament talk about in terms of taking a risk? Is it always right to take a risk or never right to take a risk? Thinking about this, aren't you? I'll give you three examples. Jesus uh, approaches the uh, disciples that are rowing across the Sea of Galilee and it's storming. They've been rowing all night. It's been six hours. They've been trying to get across the Sea of Galilee. Jesus is walking on the water. What does Peter do? Lord, if it's really you, tell me to come out to you on the water. Now guess what? What if it isn't Jesus? (laughs) And he's dead. Like he's not going to live. It's storming. He's getting out of the boat. They can't even row this thing across the Sea of Galilee in six hours. It's not that big of a lake. He's taking a leap of faith. It's a risk. It's a big risk. But he's commended for that. Jesus tells a story about a guy who has this huge uh, harvest one year. And uh, he pulls in all these crops. And he's got so much that his barns won't hold it all. He said, I'm going to tear down my barns. I'm going to build bigger barns. I'm going to put all this in my big barns. And I'm going to have enough to retire. And I'm going to be set for life. Right? How many of us would love to have that problem? Sounds like perfect situation. And what does Jesus say? You fool, your life is going to demand it of you tonight. And who's going to get all this stuff? So it's not always the wise thing to hoard and to hold on to and to play it safe and to keep for yourself. That's not always the wise thing to do. Uh, another story, you probably heard this one called the parable of the talents. You ever heard that? And uh, Jesus talks about this. He gives the owner, the, the king, gives three people talents of silver, like bags of silver. And uh, two of them do what? They invest it and they get a return, 100% return on their, on their investment. How many of you um, have investments? Anybody get a 100% return on your investment? Like I want to I talk to you about if we can do that. I mean, I don't have a lot of money, but if I can get 100% return, I would gladly invest that money. This is a risky investment. This isn't like safe. This is risky. The other guy buries his bag in the ground thinking he's playing it safe. I'll have it for when he comes back, and when he comes back, he'll have the whole amount. I won't have lost anything. And what happens in the end? You remember the story? Is he commended like... Good job playing it safe and, and making sure you didn't lose any of that money. He, doesn't, he never said, if he is condemned for his lack of faith, and the two that invested riskily were commended. And in fact, what he had was actually given to the one who had the most because they didn't play it safe. And I'm not saying we always should risk, I'm not saying we should 
always play it safe. I'm just saying that you have to understand that it's not a, a, a clear like, well, this is the right thing to do because it's safe. Or, no, this is the right thing to do because it's a leap of faith. You have to discern. You have to figure out what, what is God's will. How are we going to know this? How are we going to come to this agreement? And here's the last thing. <laughs> How do you do that? Praying, seeking the Lord, um, but you're seeking wisdom and you're also seeking um, agreement. I'll tell you real quick, as, as a married couple, um, you have a big decision to make. How do you do it? One person wants one thing, one person wants the other thing, and you're like, we're not agreeing on this. <laughs> there is some truth in that. It's not applicable right now. Um, I, I mean, I've counseled people before. I, Corey and Karen have a bunch of kids in their house because of this counsel. <laughs> Stop talking about it. Pray about it for two weeks, and when you're done praying, and you're talking about two believers now, praying, and you're you're going to commit yourself to praying. You come back together after that two weeks, and you will either have the same answer, and that's your answer, or you'll have different answers, and that's your answer. You cannot move forward if you're not in agreement. But if you're in agreement, you know the Lord has spoken to both of you, and you have confidence you can do what He's calling you to do. I believe that's wise counsel for a married couple, and I believe that's wise counsel for a church. Not that we will have 100% agreement, because we have 400 people that are going to have 400 different opinions, but overall, there should be a sense of unity. And and I want to encourage you in this, okay? We will not do anything that will split this church. We, We would never make a decision to do anything that would cause a division to that degree. Now, there may be a few people that may not be in agreement, but if it's clear that we can't come together as a body and say, yes, we believe in this future, this plan, this vision, then we would step back and say, this must not be God's will. God is not going to cause a divorce in order to to get you to do something, and he's not going to split a church in order to do something. I believe unity is one of the biggest things that he wants in, in his body. Amen? He doesn't cut off an arm in order to do a project. He won't do that. So we're going to continue to discern individually as a body, learning, hearing, listening, being gracious, offering our opinions, our concerns, and coming together and trying to like, okay, Lord, what do you want? And then at the end of the whole process, we're going to flip a coin and we'll see what God says. <laughs> we'll know. We will absolutely know. Amen. I believe that. And I think, man, I'm excited. Because either way, either way, we're on God's path when we know. Father, we love you and we thank you. We want to honor and glorify you. <laughs> Help us to do that. Help us to not shrink back from it if it's big, if it's more than we think that we can handle. Lord, you can do immeasurably more. Help us to have clear direction. Help us to have confidence. Um, and I'm, I'm just lifting up each and every person here today who's 
There's so many things that we're all trying to discern and understand what your will is. Lord, I pray that your spirit is offering guidance. Lord, if there needs to be a a repentance because of, of sin, then Lord, would you cause that sense of conviction so that um, people can move on. People can get past it and begin living towards the future instead of in the past. Lord, would you do that? Would you bless the church? Lord, you've, you have blessed this church. I, there's no doubt about that. We can't even question that, Lord. Would you continue to bless the church with your spirit, with direction, guidance, wisdom, uh, Lord, that we would have confidence. And in doing all of that, there would be unity. We would be healthy. We would be a vibrant part of winning this county to Christ. Never slacking in that, never stopping, never, never slowing. Lord, help us to do all that you've called us to do for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand. Let's sing. Um, I'm just going to encourage you. If there's something on your heart, something that's weighing you down, something that you need to decide, come to the altar. Another thing that helps is getting other people to pray for you. Amen. We have a prayer team that loves to pray for you, that was more than happy to come and, and be you know, uh, a counsel to you. You want to share a concern that you're having or a prayer issue, grab one of them. They would love to take you aside and just pray with you. Amen. Let's sing.